Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others, and the planet. Welcome to episode 91 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have someone on the show today whose book helped me so much directly when I was first leading out an excellence transformation earlier in my career. Mr. Ian Glenday is the author of Breaking Through to Flow and Lean RFS, Repetitive Flexible Supply. I am so looking forward to the conversation today as I know many organisations are struggling, particularly with planning, scheduling and flow through operations to dispatch and onto customers. Ian is a legend in space and I know many of you will gain so much value and knowledge from this conversation. Let's get into the episode. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem, no problem at all. Looking forward. I really appreciate it, Ian. Ian, what's your backstory? Like, What significant moments led you down to this path of getting involved in you know, what has ultimately led to Lean RFS and the work you continue to do? Okay. I graduated as a microbiologist. There is a relevance to this, right, in 1976. Yes, I am that old, right? And the first factory I ever worked in was a small factory that produced enzymes from deep culture fermentation of bacteria, right? Highly, highly technical. And they hired me because I just graduated as a microbiologist, right? Knew nothing about factories. They said, don't worry, that doesn't matter. It's the science that's important in this factory. You know the science. So I started work there as a shift manager. Every time I came to work, it seemed to me the planet changed. So it, for me, I then had spent most of my shift figuring out the implications of that. Yeah. To my surprise, after 12 months, they made me in charge of the factory. So I could then start experimenting with some ideas I had. Now, this is important. Because the factory ran seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 51 weeks a year, the conventional thinking was, keep the machines busy, keep the fermenters going, right? So as soon as the fermentation finished, they'd empty it, clean it, refill it, sterilize it, inoculate it, and off it went again, right? So all the machines, and the fermenter, in particular the fermenters, were permanently being utilized because that was seen as best efficiency. The problem was everything was variable. Fermentation times were variable, yield rates were variable, when the things were inoculated, could happen at any time of the day or night, right? Everything was variable. It was a nightmare. So I started to think about, I've got to get some hold on this variability, right? Variability is a killer. So what was the key thing? The key thing was the inoculation, right? That was the most critical step. So I decided I would do all the inoculations, right? Which meant when they were ready to inoculate it, they would ring me up at three in the morning and I would come in and do it or five in the morning or 12 at night. Anyway, after about five weeks of this, I thought, this is bloody useless. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> so I then said, we'll do it at nine o'clock in the morning when I'm freshest, you know, when I can do it, you know, really pay attention to it. 
So we set the inoculations for nine o'clock, which meant if the fermenters were full and sterilized and ready to go, they would sit idle until nine o'clock in the morning. Right? To my amazement, certain things started to happen. One, the fermentation times became much more standard, right? Because the inoculations were standard. Two, the yield rates went up. Why? Because now the inoculations were being done as best possible, right? Then the fermentation set off as best possible, which meant the yield rates went up, right? And the third thing that really surprised me, because I hadn't thought about it at all, was the operators really liked it because now things were in control. Now, from the nine o'clock, all the fermentation times followed. So things were happening in routines. Wonderful. Made my life easier. Yeah, you weren't getting up at all hours of the night too. No. Anyway, after a while of this, when my factory had the best figures in the, in the uh, entire organization, I got a visit from the manufacturing director to find out why my figures were so good. So I very enthusiastically explained to him what I was doing, particular nine o'clock, leaving the fermenters there little. To my surprise, he went apeshit. Oh, <laughs> Complete apeshit. What are you talking about? Leaving the fermenters idle? That's not efficient. That's terrible. You can't have the best figures. You must be fiddling them, which is the point uh, I realized that some people just were never going to get it. <laughs> no. And I left the company shortly afterwards, right? But I'd learned very valuable lessons. One, variability is a killer. Mm. You know, all variabilities you need to think. Secondly, find a step that you can standardize and then build around that, right? And thirdly, don't expect the senior managers to understand it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. they're seeped in the old ways. Yeah? I then joined a pharmaceutical company. And after a short time, I uh, uh, managed to get into the office of the manufacturing director, who was open to new ideas, was very keen on new ideas, and explained it to him, and he got it. And he said, you know, we keep changing the plan in our factories. Why don't we try it in our factories? Right? And that guy was called Dr. Bill Walsh, and he's been a huge supporter of mine all my life, because from that point, we tried it, and guess what? It worked. Yeah. Nice. And off we went. Yeah. It's such a win-win outcome, isn't it? Because there's a win-win for the human factor in it. There's a win-win for the whole process flow. There's a win-win for quality. And there's a win-win for the performance and results here. Like it's just yeah. I think no downside. the thing that I learned is that if you focus on improving efficiency, OEE, whatever you want to call it, right? To me, it's like standing around going, mm, go up, go up, right? You, efficiency is an output measure, right? You have to focus on something else that changes the inputs to impact the outputs, right? And that's why focusing on people and what makes it better for them, right? If you've got, I'd love to say, happy operators are better operators, right? So if you can do something that makes the operators happy, I guarantee you efficiencies will go up, right? Yeah. They're more involved. Yeah. So focusing on things that impact the operators positively, right, for me is the best opportunity to improve the performance of the factory. Focusing on the machines ain't going to improve the performance. Yeah. 
I actually had a conversation yesterday, a conference call with a, a guy, funnily enough, in Australia, and he's working with this company and they're trying to get the OEEs up and the OEEs around 60%. And he said he's just done an exercise where she, he looked back over the last 10 years, right, on all of their output figures, their OEEs, he said, and basically they haven't moved in 10 years. They're exactly the same as they were 10 years ago. And he then put in all the different improvement efforts that had happened over the years, you know, SMED and, you know, Six Sigma and God knows what, right? And all these improvement efforts over 10 years that had no impact whatsoever on the OEE. Mm. Wrong focus. Yeah, yeah. And why, why, why do so many companies struggle with that whole front-end piece of levelling and structuring and applying those best practices on planning and scheduling to create that calmness but performance through an okay. operation? That's a big question, right? Yeah. The vast majority of companies, in fact, every company I work with, their planning systems, whether they're bought or developed in-house, are fundamentally based on what's called economic order quantities. And that is fundamentally flawed. The problem is, it's what all the planning systems are based on, right? And if everybody's using it, it must be right, mustn't it? Mm -hmm. So let me just explain why it's fundamentally flawed. Right. It's also called batch logic. So economic order quantities or batch logic. Right? The first thing is economic order quantities. What that means is when you plan what you want to make or buy, right, then you apply an economic order quantity. Fill the truck, right? The next price break, get a volume break. So you actually end up planning to make or buy more than the real demand. Mm. As a consequence, the inventory goes up, which means at some point you've got to order less than you really want to bring it back down again. This is called the bullwhip effect, right? Everybody knows the bullwhip effect. They know it happens, right? So basically, your demand's doing that, right? That's problem number one. So even though economic order quantity is supposed to always order just the right amount, right? It orders too much and it orders too little. Secondly, when it does the calculation of what to produce or what to order, right? It uses three key pieces of data. First, the sales forecast. Does it ever happen that you sell different to forecast? All the time. Secondly, production. Production get the plan. They sometimes make a bit more or a bit less than what the plan says, frequently. And thirdly, materials. You go into the warehouse to get what the plan says you need. Does it ever happen that what the warehouse says is in the in, is in the what sorry, what the computer says is in the warehouse? And what's actually in the warehouse is different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because these three pieces are going to change, guaranteed, you will get a different plan every single time you run the plan. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Now, years and years and years ago, when I used to be a planner, we had things called mainframes, right? Computers called yeah. mainframes that would chunder away, right? And produce loads and loads of paper. We didn't have things called, you know, screens. Yeah. And to run the plan would take, you know, if you were lucky, a week. Nowadays, with the laptops and the programs we've got, 
you can run the plan right several times a day and people do because they think that's flexible and responsive and we're reacting to the marketplace and what you're doing is actually causing chaos because every time you run the plan you issue a different plan guaranteed right but the perception is that people are being responsive flexible and dare i use that word agile right agile is bollocks <laughs> this yeah. is australia isn't it i can say that <laughs> yes you can <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but their perception is they're actually being responsive right? so but everybody uses that logic so it must be right yeah there can't possibly be another logic that will solve that instability good news yeah. is there is <laughs> Go so from I that. Think it's, sorry, I think it's important. Long time ago, I moved from one company to another company, and I was telling people in the new company all the you know wonderful things about RFS, right? And then somebody held their hand up and said, "Ian, Ian, Ian, stop, stop." I said what? He said, "We haven't accepted yet that what we're doing now is wrong." And I'm like, "Oh," he said, "We're not going to do what you say until you explain to us why what we're doing now is wrong." Right. And that was a big learning curve for me because it's like people won't accept a new solution, particularly if it seems ridiculous and stupid. Right. Unless they understand now what they're doing now, why it does what it does, which is what I've just explained. Right. Yeah. So. For most people, you, you really need to look at your planning system and understand that you know, every time you run that plan, and if you've got a, a, a planner, you know, or you know, head of planning, or whatever, that thinks, you know, running the plan several times a day is a good idea, you've got a big problem because you will have several plans issued every day. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it, what you're saying, like, when you mentioned about it taking so long to run the traditional plan, it forced you to be structured. It forced you to plan ahead, to think further yeah. ahead and, and have that pace. And I was in business when you used to write letters too, before the facts and before <laughs> email. And you used to actually think about what letter you were going to write. You thought about it and you didn't just pump out a million emails and a, a million faxes. You, you sent the letters and you structured it in the right way and you thought ahead a little bit. The amount of speed and dynamicness, you could say, just create can create chaos. It can create chaos with the amount of communication people are spending their day dealing with. And it can also spend apps create chaos with what a factory or a supply chain, a warehouse, is trying to deal with. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the, the other thing is, for me, human beings love routines, and we'll get onto that in a little bit. And what that what you've just described, the way the planning systems work is it's like everything is different. Everything is variable. You know what what quantities you order when you want it delivered, when the warehouse receives it. You know that these are all things that. You know, be, become variables. Right. And I know a lot of people spend a lot of time and, and trying to organize the deliveries into the warehouse so they don't get these big peaks and troughs of deliveries. You know, suddenly there's a dozen trucks wanting emptying and then an hour later there's nothing, right? They spend a lot of time trying to manage that. Whereas for me, it's you want to come up with something that will automatically create that for you, 
that you don't have to manage it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You've got the structure and the logic to it. So, you know, I want to give you a question that yeah. I hear a lot and I'm sure you hear a lot where they go, Ian, our business, mate, you don't know it. We have so <laughs> many SKUs and items in that we got to produce. You know, mate, we just can't structure things. You know, the sales team's there's stuff changing all the time. We got 4,000 SKUs, mate. What would you say? What What's your common feed to those companies? And where, where do you talk to them about where to start? You know, they're saying to you, I've got all these SKUs and varieties I just can't think about. I need that software that's going to spit out the variable plan every half a day. Interesting question. Um, let me explain something that was a, an absolute blinding light moment for me. Right? Back you know, I developed RFS, and we'll talk about what that is in a bit, right? And I joined this chemical company, this pharmaceutical company, where there was this brilliant guy called Dr. Bill Walsh, who I mentioned before, who uh, was a huge supporter of mine. And we did it in this pharmaceutical factory in England to great success. And then we managed to convince the, the, the company, Reckitt & Coleman, it was a good idea. So we were then tasked with doing it, sending it into the 13 countries in Europe that we had factories in. Now, at that time, we, the work, there was no such thing as laptops, right? So computers produced great big reams of paper. So we invited all the MDs of these 13 companies to a conference we were going to run and we asked them to bring a listing of all of their products from the biggest volume to the smallest volume right, of sales. Now at this point I was going to teach them the wonderful thing called Pareto, right? You know Pareto yes. the 20 rule because these MDs were all marketing people so I took a chance they wouldn't know what Pareto was, right? So they came with these great Printouts, and I got them to hang them on the wall in the conference room. Right, and I gave them felt tip pen, and I said, I want you to go down until you reach 80% uh, um, of the volume, and then look across, mark it on the product, and I want you to then calculate what percent of product is 80% of the volume, because I knew it was going to be 20%, and this was going to be wow, 20%. So we only need to get 20% into this system. Yeah. As all of these 13 sheets were hanging up on the wall, I suddenly realized it was blindingly obvious to me that there was another much, much more significant line than Pareto's 80-20 rule, right? Yeah. 50% of the volume in each of these countries came from just 6% of the products. And it was the same in every country. Right. Yeah. Didn't matter what the country was, didn't matter what the products were, 6% of the products was 50% of the volume. Now this, I call it the Glenday sieve, right? Yeah. Because it sieves the products into basically different categories. Now, first time I went into hospitals, right, the doctor said, Ian, this won't work for us. We're not a factory, we're a hospital. Yeah. I said, well, let's take a look at the data. Let's look at all the operations you've done over the last six months, right? Ian, it won't work. All the patients are different. You know, we, we do thousands of different operations. It won't work. 
When we actually did the analysis, just 6% of the types of operations accounted for 50% of the patients they'd seen. Yeah. And their response was, so we are a factory, really. <laughs> now, let me just put a little thing from this hospital that was an interesting thing, and it applies to in the factories as well. Because when we then started talking about what this would mean, the significance of this, right? The doctors, the consultant doctors started saying, we ain't going to share patients, you know. I said, what are you talking about? They said that government always try and get us to share patients. We ain't going to share patients. I, I haven't said anything about sharing patients. What are you talking about? Anyway, then one of the consultants said, you know, all those routine things that we do, that we now know 6% of the things are routine, 50%. So I'd get bored silly doing that all the time. Can I do the other 50%? <laughs> yeah. Can I do the 94% that's always different? And another one said, I don't want to do all the different ones. He says, I'll be up all night studying the books to do for an operation that I haven't done in years. He said, give me the routine ones. Give me the ones that are the same every day and I'll do them like that. In debate and discussion, they then agree to divide up the patients. And what we then had was green surgeons who wanted to do the same all the time and red surgeons who was bring it on i can yeah. do this now this works exactly the same in the factory because you have the green products right half of what you do that are always the same and the red product which is the other half which is always different so you try as much as possible to separate the greens and the reds right ideally different equipment if you can right? mm. and when you do that then you better look at your people right because you want to put and i tell you when you say to the production managers okay who are your green people and red people i uh, don't know what you mean who are your firefighters oh you mean joe and fred and right they're the red people <laughs> yeah yeah I, I love it and when i first read about the glenday sieve and i read through that and then i started to apply it across the factories I work with and different elements, it just applied every time. Yeah. It was a lot of clockwork. It's brilliant, mate. And thank you for the work you did in creating that. So that just instantly, I guess, it's like you can see the forest for the trees. You, you, once you do that, you can start to see and you can see the, yep. the differences in there. Go to enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash downloads to get hold of a Glenday sieve I did many years ago after reading Ian's book, Lean RFS. Please like, subscribe and share this podcast to help others gain insights and create a better future. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah. Ian, with, with then Lean RFS, like it, I really wanted to cover that point because I know that's such a key point. I know it's a question that you yeah, probably have gotten I, it all I, the I time. As well. <laughs> I get it all the time. What are the other key elements then of Lean RFS that people should really consider? We've just helped them understand that this can apply to anything, actually. Yep. I haven't found one it can't apply to yet. That allows you to see things differently. What are the steps from there, mate, okay. people should consider? Right. We've mentioned levelling but not explained it, right? So the foundation of the Toyota production system, they, they drew it, the Toyota house, Leveling is the foundation, right? Or in Japanese, it's called Hayoka, right? So what does that actually mean? What is that? 
It's a five-step process, but I'm only going to cover step two because that's the step that I very much encourage companies to focus on, you know, as achieving. Because if you can achieve that, you will create stability, you will create, you know, a, a much better environment. So what it is, is they, similar to me, they didn't call it the Glende Sib, they didn't know the Glende Sib, but they applied Pareto and they realized that they could take a relatively small number of their products, big part of the volume, and they put it into a weekly repeating pattern. Now, let me just focus on that word pattern. Right. Originally, Toyota called this patterned production. Right. That was the original term. Right. Then they came up with the Japanese term, Hayunka, which means different things, etc. But the original term is patterned production. I want people to remember this. Patterned, i.e. the same every time. Yeah. In fact, I said to my wife, you know, if they'd only kept that word pattern, more people would have understood it. It should yes in and you wouldn't have had a business. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Well, I gotta admit, Ian, when I first read when I first read your book, I thought at last someone's made sense of all this. You know, that's <laughs> what first went through my brain. So what you're talking about is having these green products, the six percent, right, in a fixed weekly pattern. Right? So it's the same products in the same sequence, in the same volumes on the same day every week, right? Let me repeat that, you know, same product, same sequence, same volume, same days, right? And of course people say, that's ridiculous. We couldn't possibly do that. And by the way, Ian, if it's, you know, these products, we don't make them weekly now. So that means we need to make smaller batches and more changeovers. Well, that's not gonna improve our performance, is it? Um, actually it will. No, it won't. Yes, it will. No, it won't. We could go on like this for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> the book, Lean RFS, is, uh, there's an awful lot in there about Kimberly Clark, who make, you know, diapers and what do you call them in nappies in Australia? Yeah, nappies. Yeah. And Phoenix tissues and toilet paper and all that stuff. And their machines are enormous, right? So the tissue machine that makes the basic tissue is about five stories high and covers an area of about a football pitch. And they said to me, all right, Ian, this this machine, right, runs through the products every six weeks, right? So, you know, we, we don't come back to the first one again for six weeks. So fast change over that then. <laughs> so, oh, my God. Anyway, we did start, you know, that you mustn't be put off by the fact that your brain is telling you this won't work, right? Mm. So, fixed. Now, let me just take a simple example. Say you, your factory runs five days a week. Right? Just starting every week on the same product, I guarantee you will give you about half a shift's extra output, right? Mm. Because in the old way, every week you start on a different product and it takes half a shift to get the bloody machines running properly. Right. Yeah. Whereas if the workers come into work and say it's Monday, we always make this. The machines will start up quicker. It's, mm. it's just a simple fact. Right. It's Tuesday. Mm. We run this. Right. Now, I'm not saying you run them through the week. So you might run what I call green products. The, the repetitive ones, you might run them Monday through till Tuesday lunchtime. 
And then because of the red products, you've got to make the red products on the same line. It may be that the red products that are relatively similar to the ones you've just run, you'll run them Tuesday afternoon. Mm. Then you might go back to some green products Wednesday, Wednesday evening. You might go to some red products that fit with those ones. So it's not you run all green, then all red. You mix it according to what's sensible. The point mm. is you separate them and the green ones are always the same. Yeah. That seems ridiculous and stupid. But it works. But it works. Now I'm going to ask the next question, right? Because the next obvious question is, okay, why do it? Yeah. What's the point, right? Mm. Sounds wonderful, but what's the point? You okay with this? Yes, please. Yeah. Right. Batch logic, economic order quantities, is based on what's called economies of scale, right? Mm. So long runs, fewer changeovers, the machines get more efficient. There's absolutely nothing wrong with batch logic and economies of scale as long as you only make very few products. Yeah. Now, what's happened to most companies' product portfolios over the last 25 years, in fact, over the last five years, they've exploded. Yeah. Absolutely exploded, right? I mean, just go in and have a look at, you know, I don't know, Cadbury's chocolate. You know, you oh, used to be yeah. able to get dairy, meat, fruit, and nut. What can you get now? I know. I, I, the big one for the big one for me was companies like, you know, Coca-Cola, Amatil, the brewers, a lot of the brewers. Yeah. Except for Heineken. Has Heineken gone crazy? I've always heard they've held true. Have they gone crazy, do you know? I don't know. I, know. I don't know. All but the rest of them have. Yeah. And I mean it is it, you're absolutely right it is it, anyway so portfolios have exploded now when you make more and more different products you can't do economies of scale right you can't have long runs well you can but you better start building warehouses which mm. by the way most of the companies i work with have done because <laughs> <laughs> you've got to get a lot of inventory and reach yeah. the point where it's like hang on a minute we can't keep doing this so you've got to find something else so the weekly repetitive patterned production for the 6% of products, 50% of your volume, right? What that means is you don't need to hold so much stock of it because you make it every single week. That means you can release a lot of inventory, which is a lot of money. Right? So that's good. That's one reason for doing it, right? In fact, Kimberly Clark, the one thing they won't tell me is how much inventory reduction they've managed. Right? But what I do know is... They used to rent outside warehouses and now they don't, right? Yeah. <laughs> now they don't. So back to why do it. The real reason for doing it, as far as I'm concerned, is the impact it has on people, right? Yeah. Because what you're trying to do is to create a phenomenon that I call economies of repetition, right? So batch logic, economies of scale, RFS logic, economies of repetition. And there's three things. One, learning curve. We human beings, if we do the same thing at the same time every single week, guess what? We get better and better and better at it. You don't have to teach continuous improvement. It just happens, right? Yeah. So every Monday we start on this. Like I said earlier on, you will get half a shift's extra output. If they always start on the same product on a Monday, they'll just get better and better and better at the start. Right? Mm -hmm. Secondly, routines. Human beings love routines. 
And batch logic creates a different plan every time, as I said before, doesn't give people routines, right? Now, routines are different to learning curve, right? Let me give an example of routines, right? Go into the car park at work, right, one day, and map out where all the cars are parked. Go back in the same time the following day, and I guarantee you, you will find an awful lot of cars will be parked in exactly the same space or very close by. It's yeah. just the way human beings work, right? Mm. So if you've got this pattern, people will start to create routines, yeah? Just, they will naturally start to create routines, yeah? And that, people love routines, right? It, it helps them, you know, it puts them more in control, they know what they're doing. They will start to prepare, right? Let me give you an example. Kimberly clark um, factory, the, the, where we started this, the biggest change over on the line that makes the Kleenex tissues is to go from the flat box to the square box. And they decided they would do that every Wednesday at 10 o'clock. They'd fix it, right? We started running. Factory manager rang me up after about six weeks. He said, I've just been out on the factory floor. He said, you do know it's Tuesday morning? I said, yes, I do know that. He said, well, the operators, the lines are running much, much better now. So the operators are, you know, it's fine. It's all automated, etc. And they're off doing something. I didn't know what they were doing. I said, what, what are you doing? They said, we're getting ready for the changeover. He said, but the changeover's tomorrow morning. They said, yeah, but we've got a bit of time. So we're getting ready. We're getting everything lined up, ready to go. He said, in the old world, they would never, ever have done that, right? Because they would never know that that changeover was actually going to happen at that time. Now... Yeah. They got into the routine of getting everything prepared, ready to go. So guess what? The changeover gets better and better and better. Right? Yeah. They would have been sitting there traditionally thinking, what time of today is a changeover going to sneak in because we get a new schedule pushed down? This. Yeah. Know, that's what they traditionally would have been thinking. And they, and they would never <laughs> prepare for it because the chances no. are it was going to be changed. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you one last story on routines. <laughs> Some people are obsessive about routines, right? And this guy one time, he said, oh, he said, you reminded me. He said, I used to have to commute to London by train with the job I had. He said, so every morning I'd go to the station to get the train, right? He says, and one morning I'm stood on the platform waiting for the train. And this guy comes up to me and says, excuse me, you're standing on my spot. <laughs> <laughs> He said, and every day then I would go and look, and there he would be, stood on exactly the same spot. <laughs> yeah, we are creatures of habit. Absolutely. And the last thing that economy's repetition is, is stability, right? Stability is fundamental for sustainable continuous improvement standards, and that equals quality. Yeah. yeah? If, you, if it's a different plan every week, and then it changes. Sustainable continuous improvement, in my view, is practically impossible. Everybody does it their own way. Trying to get standards in place is very, very difficult, if it's not impossible, which means the, basic, the basics to create better quality just aren't there. No, and I, I guess I don't even have to question. I've seen it so many times for different companies I've worked with. Without a foundation of leveling and without a foundation of quality, you're trying to build something on quicksand. Yep. Like any improvement you do is going to end up falling over because you've got chaos. Yep. Yeah, and it's this point, it's like changeovers. You know, people put a lot of effort into SMED, you know, standardising the changeover. 
But in the old environment, where it's a different plan every week and then it changes, each shift has their own way of doing the changeover, right? Trying to get the shifts to do it the same way is, no, we know how to do it. We're best. We know how to do it, you know? And then you throw in the mix of somebody goes on holiday and a temporary worker comes in. You know, it's like, oh, God. (laughs) So to me, even things like SMED, without the stability, is doomed to failure. Yeah. You might get... You might get a, 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 some improvement coming out of a SMED-type workshop that you run. You know, you might get a temporary improvement on the changeover, but sustain it, no. No. And, and you and I both know the elements of having a place for everything with changeover or just generally, you know, sites trying to do 5S. If they don't get levelling and they don't have a baseline of quality, there's no way any of that's going to sustain because people are just running around like headless chooks so much. It's like yeah. trying to get a kid to keep his room in order. If that kid's chaos and you're living a chaos life you got no chance no absolutely not you know and, and sort of vibe you know with all the things on a you know paintball type thing you know uh, you know it will just be you know we need to do is grab that you know yeah just go get it. grab that you know <laughs> yeah i know i know i know ian chaos and instability i see them too many times within companies And I think that reading your book should be on everyone's list. Anyone in supply chain, manufacturing, hospitals, you name it, it'd be a great one for everyone to take a look at. Let's call it an end to this episode and return next week. In episode 92, we'll continue the chat about the Glendo Civ and much more. Thanks, Ian, and bye for now.